Well, thank you, Pastor Carlos. Church, it is good to be with you this morning. If you have a small child, ages kind of about preschool age up to, to kindergarten-ish, there's no really hard and fast rule on this, uh, we have taught time where they will get a special lesson that is uh, age appropriate for them back in the corner, uh, back kind of Sunday school corner of our church, the Martha Room. So they are free to get up and head over there now. And uh, today our scripture is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, so will you stand with me, if you're able, as we read the scriptures together. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your tender kindness, help us to hear from you this morning. May we have ears to hear and soft hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, one divisive food that I happen to love is blue cheese. I know, I see the expressions on some of your faces. You're like, that's disgusting. How can you love that stuff? You're like, you're like ready to vomit just for me mentioning that. And I think it's delightful, and I really do wish other people knew how good it was. Well, back in Indiana, when we were on staff with crew, my wife and I, every year we had a staff team chili cook-off. And one year I decided to make a buffalo chicken kind of themed chili recipe and so at the very end, I decided to put some blue cheese in it because, you know, that's, I feel like that goes with buffalo chicken. And you may think that is a terrible idea for any type of food you are entering into a food contest because after all, blue cheese is divisive. Well, I kind of know a secret, and that is blue cheese melts. So if you put it in a soup, nobody knows that it's there, but you still get its delicious flavor. So I put the blue cheese in, it melts, and I serve it up to all of our friends on our staff team. Sure enough, they loved it. And we won, so you know, that's extra fun. And you should have seen the look on their faces, because they, they all said things like, 
oh, we really liked your chili, and there was this flavor in it that I couldn't really place, but I liked it, and I enjoyed it. And the look on their face when I said, that was blue cheese that you were enjoying. They're like, oh, no, and it's like, yes, yes, it was. It was wonderful. There's a truth that all of us can struggle with the different, the unknown, the things that seem foreign to us. And I know some of you legitimately don't like blue cheese. So blue cheese is just a funny example of that. But we all do have those ideas in our mind about, ooh, that over there, no thank you. And oftentimes, those feelings extend towards particular cultures and peoples and places. Things new and different seem unnatural to us. But... The body of Christ is comprised of people who are different, who are radically different. And we know from reading the passage we just read that we're supposed to be one and that we're reconciled together. We know this. But when we look at the divisions in our society, and we live in a very divided society, one of the places that is the most divided, specifically among cultural and ethnic lines, is church on Sunday morning. And we know we're not supposed to be divided, but we are. Church is one of the most segregated spaces. Truth is, we forget that we have been reconciled to one another. We live as if there really are dividing walls of hostility within the body of Christ. It's just the truth of our hearts. I mean, Paul, if, if we didn't struggle with this, Paul wouldn't have to say, remember. But we do. We do. So what does it mean to be reconciled to one another? After all, last week we looked at this idea we were reconciled to God. We talked about how God had given His grace to us. We are made alive in Christ. We talk about this vertical component of relationship, that we are vertically restored with the Lord. But here, this week, horizontally, we are restored with one another. You see, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, what we looked at last week, is oftentimes thought of as a mountaintop in the Scriptures, a glorious place that gives us perspective on everything else. But the mountaintop experience doesn't stop there because Paul continues and goes on to talk about this horizontal reconciliation that we have, not that is coming, but that we have now. And he concludes with the idea that we are reconciled to one another and are this beautiful temple where God's presence is dwelling. When we sang this morning, there's joy in the house of the Lord, we were not talking about there being joy in this building. There is joy in His new temple, the church. That's where we get the title today, God Has No Summer Home, the idea that God is here with us and He's not going anywhere else. There's no secondary home that he likes to get away to because it's better. No, we are this weird, eclectic, architecturally profound building that is unlike anything else in the world. And God is delighted to dwell among us. He has no summer home. Okay, so where are we going to go today? We're going to be spending more of our time in the back half of, this, or our, of our points today, the, the points three and four. But we're going to see our, new, our old reality, a new reality, new peace, and new residence. Those are kind of four places we're going today. We're going to spend most time looking at that new piece and new residence. So, starting off today with the first idea, before Christ, we Gentiles were separated from the communal people of God. 
We Gentiles were separated from the communal people of God. I'm assuming that most of us, if not all of us in this room, are Gentiles. And uh, so we were separated from the communal people of God. And I've chosen that word communal very purposefully. Communal people of God. Because generally, we think about being separated from God, but we don't think about being separated from His communal people. So looking back in verse 11, I won't read it again, but we get the command to remember remember. Literally, the command is be remembering. This isn't a one-time, hey, remember this and you're good, but it's a ongoing, as you walk through life, remember this. Why? Because we're prone to forget. We're going to want to go back to the way things were, where we are divided. And Paul is talking specifically to Gentiles. It seems like the church at Ephesus was predominantly Gentile because of statements like this. And he says, you Gentiles who are called the uncircumcision, the uncircumcision. Now, what's he talking about there? I won't get into the details, but this was a derogatory way that Jews would look at Gentiles and describe them. Oh, you are the uncircumcised. Or in other words, you don't have the mark of being a part of the people of God because that's what circumcision was. It's, it said you belonged to his covenant people. So Jews use this as a way to say, you don't belong. And Paul says, you who were called, or called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So now Paul speaks kind of derisively towards the Jews, and he's like, they're calling themselves the circumcision. And yes, maybe physically they are, because this is done in the hands, by, uh, by, uh, done in the flesh by hands. So yes, in a very physical sense, they are circumcised, but in their hearts, they are not. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, that we ought to have, or they ought, they needed to have circumcised hearts, cut hearts, hearts that identify themselves as belonging to God. And Paul says, yeah, they call themselves the circumcision, but they do not know the Lord. So that's who he's talking to. And then in verse 12, he kind of describes five aspects of the Gentile existence. They're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. Five big things. We don't have time to unpack each one of them. But in, when you put these together, they're emphasizing the aspect of aloneness and being separated from people. They don't know the community of God. See, we live in an era where our faith really often is about us. But think back to the Old Testament. Your faith was a communal thing. You did it together. It was something that, that you, your, whole, your whole life with the people around you, not just your family, but the people in your community, was wrapped up in the worship of Yahweh. And Paul is saying, yeah, you guys, you Gentiles in the flesh, you didn't get to participate with God's people in the worship of God. You aren't a part of that. It's like when you're watching people who are fans of a particular team and you're kind of on the outside watching them celebrate. And you're like, oh, you know, I wish I got to celebrate like that, but, you know, I'm not a Chiefs fan or a Hawkeye fan or whatever. And you, and you're, you see the celebration and you just wish that you would have a taste of what that was like. It's a bleak and sad picture that Paul paints here, saying you have no hope, you're without God. There is natural hostility. 
So before Christ, we Gentiles were separated from the communal people of God. But just like last week, we get a big but coming up. A big but in verse 13, which we'll see. But before you read verse 13, here's the second point. In Christ, God has brought us Gentiles near to himself and his people. So this is the new reality. That in Christ, God has brought us Gentiles near to himself and his people. And his people. So in verse 13... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the big pivot verse in the entire paragraph that we're reading today, where we encounter the new reality. You have been brought near. You see, the Gentiles were always described as being far off. They're those nations out there. They're far off geographically, and they're far off from the worship of the Lord spiritually. And Paul here definitely uses this idea metaphorically. And even, you know, picture the temple complex. Within the temple, you had different areas that different people were allowed to go in. At the very outer ring, so technically not even in the temple at all, you had where the Gentiles could go. You had the court of the Gentiles. And they were allowed to go no further than that court. After that court, there was a court of the women. And Israelite women were allowed to go there, but they could go no further. Finally, well, not finally, but then you had Israelite men. Regular Israelite men could go further in. And beyond them, the priests could go further in. And then finally, you had the Holy of Holies, where one guy, the high priest, could go in once a year, because that's where the presence of God himself dwelt, in the Holy of Holies. And so Paul here, when he talks about being far off, now you've been brought near, there's all sorts of imagery that accompanies the temple or the idea of just being where God is. But not only that, it's all of God's people together coming and worshiping. It's not just me sitting with the Lord, but it's me sitting with the Lord and His people together, being brought near to one another. Nearness. And this fixes part of the problem of the fall. Think about when Adam and Eve fall, they eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that which they were forbidden to eat. What's the first thing that they do? Well, their eyes were opened, and so they saw they were naked, and they were now ashamed, even though prior they had no shame despite being naked. And so they sow fig leaves for themselves so that they can hide from one another. There was no barrier between the two of them, but now they are separated Yes, by fig leaves, but the idea is the same. They are no longer in perfect harmony with one another. But by the blood of Christ, there's no more need for fig leaves because we have been brought together. Now, church, please show up with your clothes next week. That's not an excuse for that. What, what I'm speaking of is relationally. We are now connected with one another. We're now connected with one another. How does Jesus do this? It's by His blood. That's what Paul says. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Sin separated us from God. We deserve death. But Christ's blood was the payment for you and for me. It cleanses us of our sin. It gets rid of the consequences, the penalty of sin. And we are united with one another by His blood. Sin has been dealt with. So in Christ, God has brought us Gentiles near to Himself and His people spent not so much time on these two points. I want to really dwell on points three and four a bit more because I think we want to drill into what do we do with this. But before I ask the question of what do we do with this, I really want to ask the question, 
of, are we just near to one another, but we're still the same old people? Like, do our old identities still hold true? What does it mean, really, to be near to one another? Well, no, we don't have the same identities. And being near with one another really ultimately means that we are one new man with one another. So point three, in Christ, God has created peace and has made us into one new type of person. In Christ, God has created peace and has made us into one new type of person. All of us together are collectively one, but we've also been made into a new type of person that did not exist before Jesus. We are a new type of person. Let's see this in the scriptures. Let me read verses 14 to 16 first. This is one sentence, which thanks Paul that this is a shorter sentence than some other places, but it's still long, so here we go. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, so Paul paints a picture of two groups. You've got your Jews and your Gentiles opposing one another, having hostility, and what stands in the middle? A dividing wall, this dividing wall of hostility. What is that wall? Well, ultimately, one group over here, the Jews, they had the law. They had this set of ordinances and commands that, one, enabled them to be purified, but two, set them apart and marked them as God's people. And they often used that to look down on those who did not have the law and say, yeah, instead of inviting them in and saying, why don't you come and be circumcised and be part of the people of God? It was like, no, 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 we don't want you. So that separated them from the Gentiles, but also the Gentiles looked at the law and the way that the Jews lived and said, you guys are straight up weird and I want nothing to do with you. And so then they would abuse and persecute Jews. So it goes both ways, both, of, both groups hating one another. Jews and Gentiles having hostility. But Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. Jesus did all of the ordinances and commandments. The Mosaic law was pointing to Jesus and His death on the cross and all of His life's work. And so with Jesus paying for our sin on the cross and fulfilling our inability, or I should, say, I should say replacing our inability to fulfill the law and giving us His ability to fulfill the law, through all of that, He has abolished the law. It is no more binding on us or the Jews, I would say. I think Paul makes that abundantly clear. So the wall, the thing that separates These two groups of people has been torn down. Now, what happens when that wall is torn down? What happens? The idea that we normally have would be the idea that happens with gold. When you take pure gold, 24 karat gold, and you mix it with other alloys and make it into, you know, say, 14 karat gold, 18 karat gold, whatever. The way gold works is 24 karat gold means it's 24 out of 24 parts gold. 18 karat gold is 18 parts out of 24 parts is gold. That other six part is some other type of metal, metal alloy. And that's the idea that we normally have. Like, oh, God's brought us together kind of like a 
like an alloy. We are maybe 18 karat gold, just a mix of different people. The early preacher John Chrysostom, preaching in the early church, used this example. He said, imagine, it's not like gold, but, or it's not mixing different things to make kind of less than pure gold, but it's taking a statue of silver, combining it with a statue of lead, and out of those two things, getting gold. Silver and lead do not make gold, by the way, just in case you were wondering, okay? Gold is its own thing. But that's what God has done with us in Christ. He's made one new man out of the two. And he describes the new man in verses 17, or kind of the two things that are true of the new man. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we, have both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So peace and access. And we saw peace uh, kind of showing up in verses 14 to 16 as well. Peace got mentioned four times. In verses 4 to 18, hostility gets mentioned twice, and whenever hostility gets mentioned, it's, the op- it's kind of talking about being, getting rid of, like get, we no longer have hostility. So you could think of it as peace getting mentioned six times, because destroying hostility is bringing peace. So this new man, this gold man, is described by having peace with God and one another. And this isn't a lack of war. It's the presence of affection. That's what true peace is. It's relationship. It's not, oh, I just tolerate you. It's no, I am with you to the very end. That is peace. And they also have access to the Father. We can all come to the Holy of Holies. Picture a triangle where you have your Jews and your Gentiles. They are able to move towards the Lord together. And as they move towards the Lord, they are moving towards one another as well. Now, this brings us to the question, what the heck do we do with this today? Because the reality is, the Jew-Gentile divide is not a real serious concern for the interior of the church today. We're not wrestling with how do Jews and Gentiles relate to one another within the church. It's just not. So how do we take a passage like this and apply it to our lives? Well, I think the thing that Paul is getting at is saying, look, We come from various different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And we still struggle to live with one another. And so we can take what he says here about Jews and Gentiles, and we need as a church to ask, how are we doing at being truly one church, two languages, multiple cultures? Are we truly doing well at that? We have natural, because of our sinful fallenness, we have a natural hostility to one another. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not trying to shame us as a church or call everybody racist. That's that's not my, my heart or intent. What I do want to say is we're fallen people. And so all of us can grow and can say, how can I love my neighbor better? How can I love my neighbor better and extend grace, mercy, and love? How can I seek to not divide over what I ought not divide over? There are some things we should divide over, namely the truth. We want to divide from those who are no longer following the Scriptures and honoring the Lord. That's a good type of division. There's usually a good type of division that happens from theological division. Not always, but oftentimes. But there's a bad type of division as well, where it's like, I don't like the way you do things. 
And so I'm going to divide. I'm going to reinvite that dividing wall of hostility. I'm going to try to build it back up again. We don't want to divide over cultural preferences, socioeconomic status, age, ethnic heritage, worship styles. Those type of things, we ought not be dividing in the body of Christ. Now this, again, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have denominations. I think it's really hard to have a denomination where different people believe different things about how the church is supposed to be run and operated. That's hard. Very hard, I'd say downright impossible. But there are many things that we ought not divide over. Why? Because we've been made into one new type of person in Christ. In Christ, we have been made into one new type of person. So what do we do? What is God doing with these new people? Why is this so important? Why, why, why is this worth even talking about? Yes, it's in the scriptures, but why are we taking time to dive into this? Well, it's because what we find at the end of this passage, God is building a house for himself in us. And you know, I forgot to put in, in Christ, God is building a house for himself in us. We are God's house. This becomes very clear. Verses 19 to 22. So then, so because we've been made into this one new man, because we have access to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God calls us the house people of God. That's where we get this household of God word. And Paul uses this word for house four times in these two sentences. He loves it. He wants to remind his readers and his hearers, you guys are the place where God dwells. God has come near to you. There's a familiness happening. You know, a dwelling place is different from, say, a hotel or a place you rent or a place you're just passing through. A dwelling place is your home. It's where your heart is. It's where you go and you put your feet up. And you sit down in your favorite chair and you say, this is where I belong and this is where my people are. That's a dwelling. And that's where God, or that's what God has made us and He is here with us. We are God's temple. God's glory came to the temple, the physical temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to be there to see God's glory coming down and filling the temple and people couldn't even go near it because it's like, holy is the Lord. What would that have been like? But then I'm confronted with words here from Paul where I realize what we have now, God says is better. God's glory manifested here now as the people of God come together and sing his praises and hear the preaching of his word and participate in the Lord's Supper is better. It is a more beautiful picture of God's presence in the world than was his temple and his presence there in the old covenant. Now I want to give us, I want to kind of put all this together. 
because it's still, it's like, well, what do we do with this? Okay, Pastor Mark, you've been talking a lot. What, what do we do with what's in this passage? And that's what I want to finish out on. And by finish out, it's, it's going to be a while. I shouldn't have said that. You know, sometimes people like, and in conclusion, and they go on for another 10 minutes. So forget I said that. We're not concluding just yet. But I want to give you two lessons, two things that we need to take from this. The first one is that your walk with Jesus is meant to be communal. And I've, I've touched on that already. But your walk with Jesus is meant to be communal. Because yes, we like to talk about, ah, Jesus dwells in my heart. We teach little kids that, and we're right to do that. Yes, Jesus is in your heart. But the way Paul talks here is that God is with us collectively, corporately. Some of you guys live your life here and God's people are over there, and on a Sunday morning, you kind of are like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll come put my hand in. You know, like if a sports team before the game, you know, you all put your hands in, you know, you know go team, whatever. And you're kind of like, you know, I'll put my hand on your shoulder as you guys put your hand. Like some of you guys live your life like that. Your Christian life is, is you. It's you and Jesus. Me and Jesus. But I think this passage confronts us with the reality it's we and Jesus and so if you look at your life I want you to ask yourself the question is there evidence that your Christian life actually involves other Christians or is it just you living your Christian life and I don't say that to shame you or to slam you I say that as an invitation and say the body awaits you that we long to run through the Christian life with you, and that you being with us and participating in the life of the body helps demonstrate something about God's glory. So I invite you to come and be a part of God's people. Don't stand to the side and say, oh, God's people, maybe someday come and be a part of it. And maybe you feel deep shame or there's, you feel like there's a barrier between you and the rest of us. And you, maybe you don't even know what it is, but you're like, I don't know how I could even do it. It feels uncomfortable. And I say, yes, being with people is uncomfortable. People are straight up weird, okay? It's just true. I'm weird. You're weird. We're all weird. And walking alongside one another is hard. And so if you are there and you're like, People aren't going to accept me. They're not going to love me. They're not going to want to be with me. I'm content where I am, even though I know that there's more. If that is you, I hear you. But I say there is life with God's people. There is life with God's people. Please come be with us. Be with us. So that's the first thing. Your walk with Jesus is meant to be communal. Here's the second thing. Your walk with Jesus, your communalness, togetherness, is meant to be weird. It's meant to be weird. The church has an eclecticness when all of us come together from different backgrounds. We're his temple after all, where God dwells, where his spirit is, and that's by design. It's not a bug, it's a feature. It's God's purpose. You see, the temple was where God's people could come and be near His presence, and as people worshipped, it's supposed to show God's glory to the world. And us, as God's church, as His people, is supposed to show the world how God reconciles people who should not be together 
who should have walls between one another, can come together and say, look at the God that we worship, that He could take people who should be full of hate for one another and put them together. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Only in the church do we find true oneness with diversity. The world loves to have diversity and wants to have it. But it's not a diversity where we are all one together. After all, we've been made one in Christ. And that's weird that somehow we are together. Our culture is struggling to know how do we do diversity well? Because they don't have the answers. I love our nation. I love our country. I love that we have the idea that we are not a, a, a country defined by an ethnicity or a very particular culture. However, our political realm does not have an answer for how we actually can be one. Why? Because it's created by man. Only the new creation of us, new men and women in Christ, only us, we are the only ones who can be one. Now, when I say one, I don't mean the same. I don't mean the same. The church has always struggled with oneness and how to come together. They struggled with people not being the same. In Acts chapter 6, one of the first conflicts in the early church, we get Hellenistic widows, that is Jews who had been kind of assimilated into Greek culture, were feeling neglected from the food distribution, and it created a problem for the whole church because these widows were not being served. And why? Because it was of a different culture. They were of a different cultural background. That was one of the first struggles in the early church, and we're still dealing with it today. How do we have a Spanish service and us truly be one church? How can we be together? We may think that it's the language barrier that's the biggest barrier between one of us, or all of us. And the language barrier is big. But I want to argue that the language barrier is not the foundational barrier. I think the language barrier is sitting on top of something else. You see, in a, I'd say within the next 10 years, I may be wrong about this, but in the next 10 years, AI will have progressed to the point where you can stick something in your ear, somebody can speak a foreign language in front of you, and it will translate it, and you'll be able to understand them. If and when that is a reality, how will we do at actually being together in one church? I think it'll reveal deeper cultural rifts that we were able to kind of paper over or not even know that they were there because of the language barrier. The language barrier is not the biggest barrier. I think it's just the one we see the most and the one that we kind of logistically have to grapple with the most. I think there are cultural barriers between us. But God has made us His house. I think it's good for us to grow in understanding different cultures and people. I encourage all of you, if you have a chance to go experience worship or a conference or anything that is run by a, a people from a different language uh, or ethnicity or culture, go and experience it. Because I think it'll give you a perspective on what it's like for people who are not from our culture. And by that, I mean predominantly white, middle America, Midwestern kind of culture that we have here on Sunday morning. You'll, you'll see what it's like for people not from that background, to what it'll be like for them to feel when they walk in here. If you go and experience a place that's very different, and I'm willing to bet you'll be like, okay, this is strange for me, and it might be difficult for me to be as comfortable as I would like to be. 
we are supposed to be one in Christ. So how do we do this? How do we do this? We are a witness to God's glory. Now, I've been framing this as this is difficult, but I want to also frame this as we get to do this because it shows God's glory. Yes, it's hard, but we get to be one together. We get to show the world what it's like to love sacrificially. This too was the witness of the early church. The early church had all sorts of different socioeconomic, cultural, ethnic, and even language uh, groups, and they all came together. Justin Martyr, one of the fathers of the church, said this, We who once despised and destroyed each other and who refused to hold anything in common with people who were not of the same tribe due to their differing customs now live in common with them. That's from the early church. British philosopher Anthony O'Hear, as he's reflecting on the atheistic evolutionary worldview, says this about what promotes survival. To favor kith and kin, do down our enemies, ignore the starving, and let the weakest go to the wall. In other words, he's saying the best way to survive is to circle the wagons, be around those you love and are like, and say, screw everyone else. That's the best way to survive. And that's what atheism, ultimately, if we're honest, would teach. But the church has a different answer. We get to show the world what it is like to live in harmony. There are two cultural lies, I think, that push against us, or that we can kind of imbibe, that prohibit us as a church from actually being one. Here's those two lies. The first lie is that my ethnic heritage is my primary identifier. My ethnic heritage is my primary identifier. And no, that's not true. As a Christian, in Christ, we are Christians first. We are members of the household of God. When I think of myself, that ought to be what I think of first. When I think of Mark Johnson, I am a Christian, someone redeemed by Jesus Christ. When we look at a museum, we tend to think of, oh, a museum is full of different pieces. Isn't it interesting? And that's not the picture that we have in Christ. We are not a museum. We are one in Christ. But here's the other error. I think we look at the culture around us and we we see that error. We see it. But I think one of the errors for us probably here that is most common is that my ethnic heritage is erased. My ethnic heritage doesn't matter. Aren't we just all one in Christ? Can't we all just get along? I don't see color. Things like that that we would say. And I think that is just as bad and probably more insidious because it's easier to to believe than the other side of things. So the two sides, my ethnic heritage is my primary identifier and my ethnic heritage is erased. Your ethnic heritage isn't erased, it's redeemed. Yes, we are one in Christ, but we still come from different backgrounds. In the New Testament, we see The writers speaking of people from different places, they don't erase their heritage. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, as Paul and Barnabas are about to be set out on their missionary journey, two of the guys who pray over them are mentioned by their ethnicity and their their cultural background, where they come from. I should say their uh, geographic background. The first one is... is a guy named Simon who is called Niger, so they're talking about his skin color. He is a dark-skinned man. Don't know where he's from, but then the second guy is Lucius of Cyrene. So we hear where he's from. 
being in Christ, being one, doesn't mean that we lose our ethnic identity. It means we get to be the best of that ethnic identity, where we can see the parts of our culture that need to be redeemed, and we say, yeah, that's where my culture or my ethnicity has gotten it wrong, but praise be to God, He's helped me to know the truth, and now I can walk in righteousness. That's who we get to be. We get to be humble. We get to walk in community with one another and the truth, open to correction as we encounter different cultures and groups and ways of doing things. And we get to see, oh, you do it that way? That's really different. But you know what? That's better than the way that I was raised. Man, help me to understand how I can do that with you. That's what we get to do in the body of Christ. It's thank you for your correction and thank you for showing me the way to go. I'm getting fired up this morning. Sorry, church. I'm just excited. All right, so all of this is odd. All of this is odd that we're together in the church, that we come together and we're one, not that we come together and we're the same. Okay, so real quick, real quick, just what, how do I kind of take this out of these doors? One, be aware, just two things to think and one thing to do. Two things to think, one thing to do. Be aware that we're tempted to divide over ethnic and cultural preferences. Just be aware. Secondly, work towards identifying and understanding where you are tempted to divide. What are your cultural preferences that you're like, yeah, I kind of like this more than what you're doing and I'm just going to kind of go and do my own thing. What is it? And that's not to, to shame you for it, but to help you recognize that it's there and, and grow. So be aware we're tempted to divide. Work towards identifying where you want to divide. And thirdly, this is for a hands, move towards those who are different from yourself. Think of one thing you can do that would maybe put yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you're moving towards someone who is different from you in the body of Christ, or even outside the body of Christ, because that can help you move towards the body of Christ. All right, big idea for today. Church, we are one. We are one, period. It's what it says. So let's live as one. May we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your precious gift to us of Jesus and how he's made us one in Christ. Help us to recognize that we are one, but also help us to celebrate our differences and be one together. Lord, we confess that we have not loved one another as well as we should, and help us to repent and be different. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.